a.k.a. responsible, proper, social distance shit-talking from spare bedrooms across exurban Atlanta. Welcome to the Godless Heathens Podcast, everybody. Thanks for listening. I'm Don. I'm Jeff. And I'm Jerry. This is a podcast by atheists that talks about a lot of things, not just atheism. We will challenge your assumptions and ours too. Definitely not here to preach to the atheist choir, but to critique, ridicule, and poke fun at anyone, especially ourselves. So join us as we examine the crossroads of politics and religion from the secular perspective. And remember, don't believe everything you hear on this podcast or anywhere else for that matter until you've independently verified it for yourself. In other words, duck, duck, go that shit. Uh, Episode 94. And we're maskless and we're still vaccinated. But we hear and we see the stats out there that many of you out in Georgia and other places are not vaccinated. So get on it. Get your ass vaccinated. Otherwise, you're an anti-vaxxer. End of story. (laughs) So we have another special guest on the pod. Somebody way more educated and smarter than us. He is Dr. Mark Flazar, who has a PhD in world history from Georgia State. He is also a friend and a colleague of mine, and now a friend of the pod. He is going to learn us some history, especially since it seems like we are in a historically fraught time right now. But I am not a historian. But I am (laughs) drinking a You Can't Be Everybody's Baby, baby, which is really Uh a stupid name for a beer. It's not any stupider than some of the other names. Yeah, okay. It's up there. It's not a very good name, but it's an exceptional beer. It is a double IPA with Galaxy, Cashmere, and Citra hops, and it is a three-way collab between Uh Good Word, Dissolver, in Asheville, and the 8th State Brewing in Greenville, South Carolina. Highly recommend We'll Drink Again. Nice. Nice. And so I picked out a Dunkelplatz. It's a, I guess, a dark lager. And this is from the the new brewery in Atlanta called Round Trip. They're kind of near Second Self and Atlanta Brewing and all that. I love how Jeff gives directions by breweries. Well, (laughs) just in case you're, you're in the neighborhood... Look them up. But they do kind of specialize in European, especially German-style beers, and it was a, it's a great place. And it's a tasty beer. Well, I am having, I'm, I'm back on wine this week. I'm going with Bogle. I don't think it's Bogle. Guess what kind of wine this is, guys? Red. Red blend. Red blend. There you go. Ding, ding, ding. This one is Petit Shiraz, Shiraz, Cabernet, and an Old Vines in it. So, and it's... It's nice and dark, and the way I like them. So, yeah, very, very nice. So, welcome to the pod, Mark. Hey, thank you, yes. I appreciate it. The idea of bringing you on happened after one of our many text conversations that I think you hate half of them because history gets involved, and my, maybe not lack of knowledge, but maybe non-professional perspective on history drives you nuts a little. You don't think there's going to be another civil war. Or you scoff at the notion, and I think, you know, sure looks that way. 
I mean, you could certainly jump in and say that I'm full of crap right now. Because normally, if we were at work or in text, you would have. I feel you're holding back on me. Well, I'd say first that it's generous that 50% of the conversations I dislike. I do dislike quite a bit more of them. I generally like the dog videos that you send. I am, of course, a massive fan of animals, bulldogs. You know, I feel about my animals. Never sending you another one of them after that. It's all going to be bad history TikToks. Those I love. I was going to say, does he send you TikToks? Because that's all he sends us is TikToks. Yes. I think it was about two weeks into my first gig with Jerry. Uh Uh-oh, we're going way back. I remember working, you know, so my head is down, I'm working, new job, and I get starting texts from my boss on my device, and I'm sitting there, and I'm like, oh, wow, what? I have no idea what this is. And it turned out to be the first of 9,000 Twitter messages, <laughs> updates, and generally funny. Generally. And insanely depressing as well, Ins- like very negative, very depressing times. Here's here's how the times are. You sure you got the right Jerry? Uh, I do. It doesn't sound like me. <laughs> <laughs> and and this is generally what we have similar but different views at times on, particularly the negativity. Because I think something unique has happened in my career path, which enabled me to have not just the view of a, a traditional historian, but like so many other people now. I've transitioned away from teaching full-time because I was in a car accident that changed my circumstances overnight. So I went on and got out into the, quote, real world, as we used to say in graduate school. And I had that taste of being valued for the first time. All the skills that we had, uh, we never saw as possessing the ability to make any money with them. We thought that when we went to graduate school, we would die with a million dollars in student loans, but at least we'd have our books, we'd have our scholarship, and that we would be contributing to society. Meanwhile, we're making less than no money, about a thousand bucks a month, roughly, in Atlanta. But anyway, it was for the love of it, in the sense that we were helping to shape people's perspectives and to contribute to the greater good. So all of this training was about looking at the world and looking at how the history got created. So we can talk about that maybe a little bit more down the road. But So you acknowledge that I valued you at work? That's all I heard. <laughs> <laughs> it's a different experience because I think maybe what's, what's interesting about the history thing is, is what happens when you're trained to be a historian. So most people think that you get out and you will know every single fact about every battle, everything that happened. Every date. Everything that happened before yesterday. Absolutely. And so the first thing that happens when somebody hears that you're in graduate school is usually a civil war question, regardless if you're in the north or south or or way out west. It's usually some obnoxious thing about Gettysburg in the third day. Who's the bugler? Yeah, or, or something like that. Or like, let's test this guy's credentials. Let's stump the nerd. Stump the yeah. nerd, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so when you go through graduate school, it's, it's a long and arduous process, particularly when you have a research-based PhD. Um, so you are trained in a lot of kind of methodologies, even ways to read and gut a book, they call it. And so you'll be able to pull the book apart and, and figure out how it was constructed. Everything from crafting an argument to 
figuring out where that book fits in a larger story or what they call the historiography. It's the history of the history. So the important part about graduate school is you learn to figure out the conversations that have already been had and trace their lineage in how the books speak to one another in order to then insert your own voice within that larger story so you're not stepping on anybody else's arguments to say that you're not rewriting the same history, that you're contributing an original piece of scholarship. You're bringing something fresh. That is the entire goal. And that's the first and hard and fast rule to being a historian is doing scholarship that's an original and that you're engaging and not setting apart your argument in terms of, say, just slapping your name across someone else's to say that, oh, I'm going to write a book about Abraham Lincoln and I'm going to call it Abraham Lincoln Alive and make a particular argument that's been done. The authors are there. So the original scholarship aspect is hugely important. And so through the course of graduate school, you learn how to do that. And more importantly, you learn how to pull these arguments apart to figure out how they were constructed and you dissect the book that way through book reviews. The art of the book review is really important. You, know, you can get a lot within about two pages, and then you can cut some more, and you can say pretty meaningful things even within about a page or so to distill it down to its essence, the argument. What is the actual argument? And we learn that as a skill in graduate school to be able to faithfully articulate someone else's argument in order to then engage it. You can't do a straw man argument and be able to get through graduate school that way. It, it's just hmm. one of the uh, tenets that we learn. You have to accurately and faithfully state someone else's argument before you engage them. Mark, let me ask you this. The common saying is history is written by the winners. And I think we've all heard that. But as I think about that, I at least my impression is, and I'd like to hear your thoughts on it, is history is written by all sides. It's just that certain ones are more privileged than others. So in other words, as a historian, there's other resources out there that you can draw from if you want to get a larger picture. So that kind of discounts that idea of, of history being written by the winners. Is that What's your take on that? Yeah, well, a lot has changed, actually, even in the writing of history. It seems like everyone's a historian now. And I, you know, I say that partly tongue-in-cheek, but it's certainly encouraged way more on everything from these podcasts that are happening to being able to self-publish. There are people who are great at running history blogs who are able to churn out meaningful stuff that helps way more people than anything I'll ever do just because of the ability to have open access and to, to be able to churn out stuff in a timely manner. I think as far as the winners writing history, it certainly is true. It is changing. And I'm not sure how complex you want to get with it, but there are whole theories about how archival repositories themselves and the way that they're set up privilege elites. And so that becomes important when you are, say, in my field, I do comparative systems of slavery, particularly in the Atlantic world. And so what that means is I am most often looking for people who aren't really there in the documents. And I'm trying to tease them out. And I'm, of course, speaking largely to the enslaved. So they typically did not write and could not write. And when you find them in these documents, you find snippets of their voice or sort of shadows 
of them lingering in the hallways or what they did wrong in the fields or something like that, or particularly when they're lost or they run away, even less so when they die. It's kind of a strange thing to look at these documents. And I think it's one thing to be hardened to hearing familiar things about slavery being bad and evil. And and absolutely, of course it is. I assure you, it's quite another thing to go into an archive. The place that I went to frequently was Duke University, which is, you talk about winners writing the history and stuff like that. I mean, you have these really fancy buildings, you know, multi-million dollar buildings holding these fragile papers. And so you look through this and it's tough sometimes because you so badly want this other side. So typically members of the planner class, that is the elite, sort of the 1% slave owners, they were typically well-educated. They, of course, had the resources, the libraries. They didn't also have to bust their ass in the field and really didn't have to work for a living. Yeah, you know, it's it's a complex thing, slavery, or, or as we are fond of saying, slaveries. Sort of the trend within the last 20 years or so is getting the way away from the idea that things are the same across time and space. There is no such thing as a single slavery, but we have multiple slaveries. There are various types built around different labor schemes, the way you organize your labor, the kind of crops you're growing. And of course, all of those things matter because it determines the type of society that they're all living in. But typically these planters are phenomenally wealthy if you've hit that class. They are the one percenters. They are certainly trying to write the history of enslavement in many ways. Their legacy and those of their children passed down after the Civil War, that is still with us. And we see we see that when we go to a lot of plantations. And I'm not going to name any specifically. But if you go to any number of these plantations, you find this kind of disturbing narrative where they have this building that is a relic from the past. We know in our modern day that it was filled with horrors unimaginable. They're also beautiful and they are refined and they feature all these really intricate, neatly carved aspects and they're really, really kind of elegant. And then you have this other weird thing of you're going to a plantation, you know you're going to hear this story. And you almost always know that it's going to be some strange story that essentially involves some kind of kind, benevolent slave master or planter or southern gentleman. And then there's going to be some weird thing about what about the slaves here? And you're almost always going to hear a little bit about their work routine, that it was never really that severe. And then that's probably going to be about it because they don't really know because they didn't leave any of their voices behind. Not really. We have some of the oral slave testimonies that were done in the 20s and in most of them were done in the 30s as part of the uh, public works program. There's a number of issues with those. But the story of, of slavery told by the slaves is quite thin. So when I go to plantations, you are hearing more often than not the winners, I guess you could say, writing the history. So the answer is yes, the winners do write history. But when you said earlier that it favors the elite, what doesn't favor the elite? I mean, it, it, <laughs> yeah. it, seriously. The downside of being the elite. Right. Like, that's a good question. In every facet, that's exactly why they're elite, why they stay elite, and the same type of people are elite. And we are those type of people 
but we probably don't feel that elite. Not elite like back in the day elite. And isn't that kind of the source of a lot of white discontent now? The neoliberalism? I'm talking about the neoconservatism probably more than the neoliberalism. Why then, and I didn't think we'd go down this road, but you started it. (laughs) So why do seemingly so many Republicans and non-college educated white people are more reactionary than probably any time in our lives. And one of their complaints is with, quote, elites, and that they are seen as elites by some people, and they don't feel it. And in that respect, they might have a point. But if it really doesn't matter what color you are in some respects, if you're not elite, then you're still not part of the 1%. Yeah, I mean, this is the kind of stuff that's really difficult to talk about. How come? Well, part of it is a bad look. Consider anything that comes out of my mouth, right? In this time of we're in this anti-elitism, we're also in this um, anti-intellectualism. For sure. Time. Mm-hmm. Anything that I say is going to be construed as, you know, know-it-all, blowhard, fancy learning. I've heard all of that kind of stuff. But not by everybody. No, not by everybody, but certainly it's difficult to argue that the times and the tone of the times does not lead one to to feel really good about about trying to explain the way things are to a large group of people in the country who are inherently skeptical of, of anything that comes out of your mouth, unless skeptical it is skeptical at best. Kind of, at, at, at best, that implies that they really give it a lot of thought. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's certainly very difficult because I feel like to be educated today is to not really have an audience who who's listening with relaxed belief, as as others have said but more like, what can I tear down as soon as it comes out of their mouth? It's a difficult thing, particularly for, for people who want to help and who believe that, they're, that they've done everything that they've needed to do in order to be able to do that. I, of course, am not in academia anymore teaching. You know, it, it's, it's, a very difficult, it's a very difficult gig, uh, which I'm sure isn't a shock to anybody. But certainly the spirit of the times changing to be one where you know a lot, but then you're seen as public enemy number one. It's not a situation I ever really foresaw happening. Try to answer this as non-historian as you can. How do you know, Don thought that was funny. Yeah. (laughs) How do you know that you are in a, quote, historical time while you're in it? And remember, forget all your formal training. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess I'm not even able to answer that without referring to the past, is that I think most of us are just trying to do the best we can. We feel the things that we feel today based trying on... Trying to yesterday. get by. But we're trying to get by. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think it's always been the same way. Um, it's much easier, I think, when you are able to look back to see how things shake out to see how this coming conservatism 
has been on the ascent and, and it shouldn't be necessarily be a surprise, I guess. But I think the part that I disagree with so much about in our text is that I'm not ignorant of all the evil in the world, but I'm very much aware of the fact that even having this podcast for, for you, for the three of you, allows even just you, Jared, to to voice your opposition to this stuff and to think that there are, are a huge number of people out there who are not very happy with what's going on, to say the least, and they're doing everything they can in addition to living their lives to try to make sure that they are taking an active part in, in making a better world, making a better political system, whatever it is. And that to me is the entire point of history is if you take this conflict away and you say that things are terrible, they've been terrible, they're terrible now and they're going to be terrible. It completely takes the human agency out of things, which is the entire being for history. And the idea that, that conflict, there are at least two sides. That to me- Did you just both is, sides us? <laughs> perhaps. But the idea that there are people actively doing something means that all hope is not lost. And I think as a historian, that's one of the, 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 the bigger things about the historical training that I look at is you don't really get history or things changing without this conflict that no group just steamrolls its way through everything unopposed. And so I think it's cheesy, but you know, history, if anything, to me is, is about hope. And I know that you talk about the, what was it the other day that uh, the arcs of history and all that sort uh, of stuff. I hate it when you quote me. It's not even that. It's that if we're all doing what we're doing today and we're unaware of what, what's gonna happen tomorrow, we all have a chance. It's not to say that there aren't going to be bad things and there will always be bad things, but there's always human agency. There's this other group or groups who say enough. It has always happened and will always happen. Right, but how much pain, how much pain is inflicted by the, quote, winners before the evil is toppled throughout history? Yeah, there's always been people fighting back, but they get killed a lot. Societies are are overrun or groups are are exterminated. And I'm not saying that we're on the way to that, but... Let me throw this out there and let me see if it ties into what you're saying. But, you know, if we look at the, the insurrection of not that many months ago, right. and, and it seems like there's an intentionality to rewrite that history already. It's not like the lost cause that took a few decades anyway before that started to kick in. It's like just a few months. And we have people saying that it was just tourists going through there. There's millions of people that believe that rewritten history. And, and so I, I don't know how, how you fight against that. Well, that's the big question, isn't it? I, I still think that giving in to the idea that all hope is lost kind of thing, to think that these problems are insurmountable and we just don't have any option. I don't know what the strategy is there, but that seems to be a poor one. But wait a minute. First of all, it's not that all hope is lost, but when you get to all hope is lost, it's too late. But what about our society says to you that it's getting to be too late, that there aren't 
enough people trying to fight the good fight. What makes me think that we're on that path? The systematic dismantling of fair elections would be one. I don't think you have to even go that far. I mean, just the fact that both sides are basically telling their base that that's where we're at right now, is that we're on the brink of history. And if the other side either gains power or retains power, then the country as we know it is will cease to exist. Yeah, it's all over. Because the the Democrats are saying that basically they they have to get rid of the filibuster so they can put through the Voting Rights Act or else they're just going to get legislated out of history. And the Republicans are saying that if we don't get rid of the Democrats, communism, leave it to Beaver, won't exist anymore. They sound like wholly unique arguments that have never happened before. That was historical sarcasm, by the way. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, and this is part where, you know, I don't mean to sound naive or anything, but you know, you go back into the 1820s, 1830s, you know, and you see the same stuff with Jacksonian democracy. What happened in the 1860s? Remind me. <laughs> well, I was talking about the 1820s and 30s. I know. But 40 years if, later. But, if you want right. to talk about what happened in the 1860s, I would say that what you had is you had two completely different classes and two different types of economies crashing into one another. One which yeah. was vastly superior and the other was clinging to its archaic, outdated way of life. Hmm. Sounds familiar. So are you saying that both sides are, are playing to their base and using hyperbole to build a sense of urgency? Of course, among, among other things. You know, yeah. part, of, part of it's politics. Part of it is taking advantage of majority of people who aren't going to do their homework or think that they've done the homework but aren't thinking for themselves. But this is where the conversation gets difficult because not only am I not a political historian, but I'm not even a modern historian. These are difficult times because uh, any explanation that comes out to try to give coherence to say that is every Republican delusional, is every Democrat correct? I think the answer probably lies somewhere in the middle, but nobody wants to hear that. We have been there before. I don't know what will happen in the future, but this uh, allusion to civil war, I I don't think is, is correct at all, because that implies some really horrific stuff that I don't think as a society we can go toward. We can have 20 people killed and it's a massacre. We had battles where several thousand were killed, and it's just unfathomable today. But you don't, you don't think we could have a blood, uh, well, not bloodless, we've already had blood spilled, but a, you know, a civil war that doesn't involve uh, weaponry on both sides? Because that's kind of how I see it now. Sure. Is, um, it's a war being battled at the ballot box? What, what are you saying? Well, yeah, legislatively, um, you know, where you're going back to the days of the days of the Civil War, the Confederacy basically wanted to have a minority rule also. That was kind of their hierarchical structure to minimize, you know, only the, the wealthy plantation owners basically had the right to vote. And that's kind of what, what the Republican Party is trying to turn things back towards. The war came about just because the North didn't want to lose the South. They wanted to save the Union, but... Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly agree with you, but the problem that I have is, is is what that all means in terms of 
why why give in to saying that civil war is inevitable or you, know, you you see it coming down the pike? I mean, like anything is is technically possible, right? I'm but, almost of the main set, the mindset that the the war was never. Uh, lost or won originally, you know. Yes, they um, signed the papers and all that, but I think the Civil War is continuing on to this day. I don't think we ever really went away from it. Well, certainly the players have changed too. I mean, the fact mm-hmm. that I don't know how many are, are all of you in Georgia. Yeah, yeah. All, all all of you from Georgia? Not originally. No, nobody no. For, in Georgia is from Georgia. Everybody's a transplant. So that right there changes some of the you know sectional aspects of of the repeated civil war certainly. So here's the part that I don't understand though. Yeah. You talked about how things were bad in the 1820s. Uh-huh. But don't necessarily see that as a precursor to 1861. And I'm not a historian obviously, but time and events moved way slower than they do now. Way, way slower. Now, it's instantaneous to a fault. Mm -hmm. Uh And things that happened in 1820, you had 41 years to go in another direction, to head this civil war off. Uh And it obviously didn't happen. And there's a difference between saying that it looks ugly now, don't want to get there, Versus it's inevitable. Well, I don't think anybody wants to get there. Well, uh, but clearly not. But even talking about it is seen to some, and you might be one of them, a bridge too far. Can't talk like that. For the sake of argument, we'll say, okay, that is a bridge too far. But the instant rewriting of, quote, history of what happened in January is disturbing, Having elected representatives from this state say that they were tourists or Antifa or good old-fashioned Americans exercising their rights. I think if it was Antifa, they'd want to do an investigation and get to the bottom of yeah, it. Yeah, so. Benghazi-like. <laughs> um, the voting rules, we have not necessarily been affected and victim to that. But this... Last election, the president tried to strong arm uh-huh. state officials to turn an election. To do the right thing. <laughs> to find yeah. the votes. Right. Just find, find the votes. Right. I, you know, right. it's, it's only 12,000. They're in a bag marked votes. Who's gonna Just, <laughs> you know, it should be easy to find. Just toss it in a dumpster. No one will know. <laughs> but that's never happened in our lifetime. States going out of their way to make things more difficult for certain people to vote, none of which are signs of a, of a healthy democracy. Congress has been dysfunctional for a long time, and now we're starting to pay more attention to it. The, the battle flag of the Confederacy breached the Capitol building for the first time ever in 2021. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm not really sure where you want to go with this, just because for somebody to say... I'm sorry, I don't agree that there's going to be another civil war. When you when you say things okay, like wait civil a minute, war, wait a minute. Do you right? And but no one's saying that. What about the other day? Pardon me. You're texting me, or at least <laughs> up until week, weekly, 
were, and you still don't think there's going to be a civil war? The possibility of one, because one thing that I think too many people across every political thought group has this idea of American exceptionalism that, quote, it can't happen here. There's a lengthy historiography about that as well. Let's hear the condensed historiography. No, it did happen here. It, it, it did happen here. So why can't it happen again? Well, what is what does civil war look like to you? Then? Unfair elections. We had those even without a civil war, though. We had them decades after the civil war. I'm not saying that everything has been perfect leading up to this point. There have been all kinds of problems that somehow we as a society have been able to, to get around. Somehow the Union, quote, survived a civil war. But there was a, a obviously a lot of unsavory things that happened between then and now in all kinds of different theaters. But to think that how things are going now are destined to continue, that part I have a problem with. And I think mm -hmm. too many people have taken everything that has gone on in their lives as the way things are and the way things they will always be. And I think that's dangerous. Okay. Uh-oh. I mean... It's quiet. <laughs> it's a bad sign. I guess agree to disagree, but I do think if we could start back at maybe the beginning to say, like, I don't disagree with you that things are are not particularly uh, great right now. I know that I'm particularly upset by everything that's gone on in the last, pick how many months, pick how many years, take your pick. I just think that when you introduce concepts like civil war to a historian, I look at things very differently when you say that. It triggers an, a, a huge amount of, of stuff that I just, I can't go there with. Well, what does it trigger? Uh, it triggers about 700,000 plus deaths, over a million casualties. Fantastical amount of death, misery, and suffering, of which we still never really recovered. A million plus stories of, of horrors some bright spots in there of humanity doing the right thing. But it's a, di it's a dismal picture of, of an absolute hellhole existence. And so when I think about the horrors of, of civil war and I think about where we're at now, I can't go there with you because I don't think that we're even close to that. I would argue that, yeah, politically things are an absolute mess and particularly Republicans are trying to get away with an awful lot of stuff right now. But I also think that if you're asking in a historian's view, I would say that the stuff that appears on Twitter now or tomorrow or a rewriting of a history from January to now, I would say BS, you don't have enough time to write that history. The history is coming, particularly the further we get out from that. And there are people, there's good historians who are looking at it and, and trying to take account of everything that happened, not just this five, six months out uh, frustration and not knowing what's going to happen and thinking that everything is going to hell in a handbasket. But Mark, that's a political right granted 
by society as a whole for historians to actually do their job. And one of the signs of undemocratic rule is when they start cracking down on the intellectuals. And to Jeff's point, the winners write history. And when you say that they're trying to rewrite history over the course of a few months, they are trying to rewrite history. They're completely trying to rewrite history. They are trying to do a lot of things. You don't think they're finding success, though? In certain places, yeah, I I do. But I also see a remarkable uh, mobility of, of groups opposing the they, right? And this is where you and I differ with stuff of I understand that there's an awful lot of fear. There's always been tons of fear with the uncertainty anywhere in human history, and people try to make sense of stuff. So I would argue that you have an awful lot of these people who are preferring the these rewritten histories, right? Because it gives them a sense of order and calm in uncertain times with the rugs being pulled out from them economically, politically. Uh, we also face an epidemic of loneliness, you know, of people trying to, to feel like they belong somewhere. So I look at all of these things together and I feel like there's something more happening here that's multi-causal rather than just a bunch of greedy Republicans hell-bent on on taking over the country and, and, and bringing on civil war. But that's a caricature of the other side, though, when you say that. That reduces the opposition to, quote, a bunch of greedy Republicans hell-bent on civil war. That's not, and obviously, that's, I don't agree with that. I, I don't see myself in that. But there's easily just as nuanced a view of the other side as there is, uh, or of the, the left or non-Republican side than that. Mm-hmm. I mean, you don't have groups of minority governments removing voting precincts in rural white GOP strongholds. You don't have that type of political power. But that political power is absolutely being muscled against, quote, enemies. And overtly. And this is not saying that everything that Democrats have done or the left or any side has been above board, particularly in the political sphere. But it's hard for me not to see certain groups and certain political persuasions as being straight up targeted. And once that starts, and this may be the non-historian me again, but once it starts, it seems very difficult to stop. That is my probably biggest concern. Let me ask you this then. Other than like immediately following the Civil War reconstruction, has there ever been a time where the country is as divided as we are now? Well, reconstruction, as you said, yeah. I mean, I would assume immediately following a civil war, people are still pretty pissed at each other. Yeah, it was until 10, 15, 20 years was was pretty dicey after the war. But then the Great Reunion after 1876, mid-1880s, was sort of the high point of the reunions. Um, it's, It's difficult, certainly, to think of another time. Uh, where we've been as divided. But the other thing, too, is because there is a sensory overload, I think the the, the thing that uh, historians are criticized for is that we take our time to look at what's happening, that, that we don't 
churn out books every six months. That the discipline itself is one of, of taking stock of what's happened, get some distance from things. And there, it's perspective. Uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I you would create a vastly different book if you wrote it five months out from, say, the insurrection, than you would a year or two years or five years. Mm -hmm. um, I know that the discipline is is undergone a, a lot of criticism for, it, and there's a lot of debate about it. But it's still it's very difficult. Uh, to produce meaningful scholarship, stuff that would stand longer than, you know, a passing fad to create meaningful scholarship takes time and perspective uh, to get some actual distance there. Let me ask you this. History is being recorded right now. Mm -hmm. And as you mentioned, you know, it'd be kind of unwise to try to write a history book while it's going on. You want to have some time. But what resources, let's say um, 10, 20 years down the road, somebody, a historian is writing the book of these times, what resources would they pull from? You know, this is uh, frequently debated. And we've talked about, you know, even among my friends. So I do colonial history, colonial to roughly about 1400 to about 1850, somewhere around there. And so the sources I would use are, are clearly quite different than those that will be available to people clearly in the future uh, when, they're, when they're looking at all the memorabilia, they're looking at the, the video, which of course I don't have in, in my own studies. But then you've got information overload. That's been a challenge that's been ongoing at least since probably the late 70s, early 80s, is what do you do with all this information? It, it's overwhelming. But I think as historians, and this is where it gets tricky, it's looking and evaluating sources to figure out what to include and what to eliminate. And as there's more and more stuff produced, it becomes harder and harder as historians to synthesize all this material, as in to tell a coherent story from all these disparate sources. Um, it's certainly going to be challenging. And I think that as historians, there is a part, it's also, it's not talked about a lot, but I think there's always this part of, did we capture the essence of the thing? Were we able to really kind of get at the smell, the feel, you know, the, the, the spirit of the times? So can you capture the essence in real time, or is that not history? It is, but it's the difference between, say, you have um, like the tweets that you sent, for example, right? If you went just by the tweets. Man, you're hating on my tweets. I got to go look at our message well, thread. if you were to take the temperature <laughs> of the tweets, right, it, it's, it, it's some pretty scary stuff. You know, even for all the, there was, if you look at even like what Trump did, for example, right? The amount of stuff that he said he was going to do versus the stuff that he actually did, there's a pretty big gap there. I guess the difference would be to you're trying to react to the infinite possibilities and all the stuff that he said he was going to do. And then you try to create a story of that. I mean, you're going to be all over the place and, and it's going to feel pretty insane. And so when I read those tweets and stuff like that, I try to take some space from it, which is why I don't want to be plugged into that machine all the time because um, having worked in that? finance. 
well, the computer, the social media, all that sort of stuff. I try the to news? get Well, yeah, but there's a difference between like reading the newspaper and reading Twitter updates all day. You don't read a newspaper. The AJC, I do. You get the AJC? I do. Good for you. Like the paper I copy? Too. I do. So you get about 70% of AP stories from the AJC. You get the That's same horrible. stuff other than a few local stories that is on Twitter. But I still feel like the medium, too, uh, my criticism of, of being able to get stuff out quickly, and this is, again, why I'm not a journalist, is I like the ability to take my time with something and then put it into print and then send it out when I'm ready to publish, right? And I feel like sometimes these these tweets, they're rushing half truth sometimes or some misinformation because there's you just can't know everything that you want to know, but you've got to get that information out. So we're all reacting to this, you know, for better or worse, this noise, right? So when I worked in finance, we were discouraged from listening to this noise because if you were trying to, say, deal with portfolios or understand, you know, how to deal with your investments, if you listen to all that noise, it would drive you crazy and it would drive you to, um, to err badly because you're trying to react to everything anytime markets swing. And so people would be frantic. So I remember where it was instilled in us. You had to watch what you were taking in and not react to every single thing as it came in. Well, you know, an interesting uh, thing to think about is, you know, for historians, let's say 20 years down the road when they're writing about the, the Trump presidency, in the archives basically is the, his Twitter feed uh-huh. is going to be their primary resource for, you know, inside the mind of Trump. So what does that do for history? <laughs> Or for the resource. Is his Twitter feed archived somewhere? Yes. It's, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and, and this brings up a good question, though, because while well, in the situation that I brought up before about, say, the story of Southern slavery written by the winners, do you think that Trump will be looked upon favorably by historians? That's a good no, question. No, Depends. There's no Depends on who the winners are. Yeah, exactly. There's Absolutely. No Bill O'Reilly will no longer be with us, you know, in 20 or 30 years or something like that. But So he won't write killing uh, Trump? Killing Trump. Right, right. <laughs> it, it will be another one of those. But that's the part about the history thing, too, is that, yes, traditionally it's a left-leaning. You're traditionally left-leaning when you're a historian. I have a bunch of reasons why I think that's probably the case. But it does bring up an interesting aspect of if the winners are always writing the history, then what are us historians doing? Because I'm pretty sure I didn't sympathize with Trump, never have, never would. And there's a sizable amount of historians who, who certainly don't agree either, who are writing the history. So I think there was a point that was brought up earlier about how history writing has changed. And I think it's changing by leaps and bounds in in, in many ways. One of the things that's changed, particularly over the last 40 or 50 years, is you see a number of, of historians, most historians, 
emphasizing things like race, class, and gender, and the idea of to recover voices that are lost, those who can't speak for themselves. So for example, um, in my dissertation, the last chapter of my dissertation is meant to understand how and why a particular person's folk image was created. And I was able to determine through a bunch of oral and, and written sources collected that you have a hodgepodge of, of these different people put together and you created this sort of fictional person who's celebrated in, in parts of Florida. But then there is this group of, of people whom he owned who are constantly left out of the story. And so through my archival research, I was able to discover a number of their names and occupations and, and what happened to them and a group of them whom were taken to Haiti. They built a community themselves. This wasn't anything that white people did for them. This was something that they did under pretty brutal conditions and they, they came together and created their own community. So I was the first person to write that history. So this idea that winners write history always doesn't seem to be true. And it certainly, I would never claim that to be true even most of the time. I think it certainly was up until modern times when things weren't professionalized when there was no such thing as a historical discipline. But we get into archives and, and we read widely and deeply and we get to know all these disparate voices that speak to us in a different way than, than people in the past had access to. So we have massive amounts of information that we can pull from lots of different places to add layers and depths to these stories that we're telling. And I think contribute meaningfully to tell a different side rather than just that winners are telling these stories, that, that winners always have the day. And I don't think that that's been true for history for, for quite a while, actually. Yes, I've, I've written textbooks and journal articles and everything else. And in fact, most of the story is actually geared toward emphasizing non-elite white males, particularly over the last about... 25 or 30 years. Okay. So why then is there such a commotion over critical race theory? I, I don't like, I'm not a historian, so I don't spend my day obviously thinking about history, but it is kind of clear that the people who win do write the majority of history and not everybody is always a part of it. But the commotion over critical race theory is way more political than historical. Mm -hmm. That's the part that is not only interesting, but troubling to me because it is, you're not going to teach our kids that stuff. We're not going to be told that we are the problem and have always been the problem. We reject that notion, and you will not teach our kids that. Well, to back up a step, though, I mean, this whole thing came about as a Republican tool, just like the transgender high school students not being allowed in athletics. 
is not a problem. Schools are not teaching critical race theory. Very few colleges or even even have courses on critical race theory. So it's just it's being a divisive tool by the right. Where it's having its play is they don't want to talk about race at all in any shape, form, or fashion. In other words, they don't want to hear any of the wider history told by the people that didn't have the voices. It's now against the law to do so in Texas. Well, Texas is an interesting case always because of the amount of textbooks that they sell there. Yeah. Yeah. They they basically create the market for the rest of the country. Correct. Yeah. They've had some success, not a huge amount of success, but certainly some. Um, And I've been on the textbook side of things and it's tricky. It's really tricky. I've written for college level textbooks and I've written for seventh, eighth grade level textbooks, but similar problems. I'd say the seventh and eighth grade ones seem to be remarkable in how much stuff will change between the time that you get the assignment and even when you finish writing, even in a matter of, you know, four to six or eight weeks, you can change. I remember doing um, several chapters on Africa and it went from roughly 50,000 BC to modern times and the assignment was changed and six weeks later they wanted Nelson Mandela, AIDS, and the slave trade. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? I personally think it's a bad thing when you try to trim down these stories to, you know, say two or three points, because the same thing happens. You could argue from the right standpoint, the same thing is happening from, you know, when, when you're trying to teach about, say, Washington or Jefferson. They'll remove everything except for one or, or, or two points. The whole point is, is that we are dumbing down uh, these histories where one of the problems with, with the, these textbooks and the way that these things are, are generated now is we're getting these teeny tiny little snippets of stories without any connective tissue and usually lacking context. And so context for me is everything. It's the you know reason for being as a historian is to try to explain the context of the times, to place the people, the ideas, the things themselves within their times to understand that they're, of course, different than ours. And our job as historians in in many ways is to speak a different language, which is the historiography on the one hand, then more importantly act as as an interpreter or explainer for, for a time and place that, you know, we can't know now. Otherwise, it's very difficult. So I used to, for example, I used to talk about, say, the Caribbean in the 1600s and the you know North American colonies in the 1700s, and then the world that was created in the you know 19th century, and then World War One, World War Two, and you would talk about the the types of people and the sort of the general habits of thinking. They were pretty vastly different, I would argue, until you got up to um, about World War One, and then the people were closer to our our way of thinking today. Not perfect, and this is the sort of difficult part about just talking freely without being so closely guarded about making sure you're crossing all your historian, you know, dotting your eyes and crossing your T's and stuff, but. 
um, the people of the Revolutionary Era were radically different than the people in the Civil War. And the people in the Civil War were radically different than those folks at the turn of the century, and so on and so on. And you see this sort of speeding up as industrialization happened. And you see how man and machine kind of became more united and ideas flowed more freely and sort of changed the, the wider culture. But when you go back, it's pretty shocking to, to read what the average person who was able to write and capture their thoughts, to hear what their days sounded like, what their worries were. You know, it's just radically different than, I don't know how I want to say it, but you get the idea. Then now. Yeah. When you talk about everything it has sped up, how is that not a huge factor today? The speed of change has always greatly threatened to destabilize all society. And there's a reason why you see things like the Great Awakening and Second Great Awakening. And you have these various revival movements throughout the United States, for example, in the past where exactly the moment that things are changing so quickly are the times that people are clinging to anything that will give them some sort of semblance of hope and to make mm. sense of what's going on. <laughs> QAnon! <coughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it isn't, so. seriously, isn't QAnon a, a great example of that? Yeah. I'm not being as flip as maybe you think I am. But when you talk no, about a great so. awakening... In 20 or 30 years, are we going to talk about QAnon as another example of a great awakening? I, I think it's absolutely possible because I think everybody gets their fix now from, I think you could make a compelling argument if, if somebody would would do this, uh, if they've not already done, say that the, their Netflix, for example, is, is the thing that gets them through, that makes them sane, that, that becomes like their God. You know, it gives them, you know, some sort of sense of calm in, in, a, in a crazy world, it, you know, or it's probably not Facebook anymore, but whatever the next thing is, TikTok or, or whatever, we're heavily invested. Is that a TikTok slam? Yeah, I don't get the TikTok thing. <laughs> you like animal TikTok. I, I like the animal TikTok. I, I closed them. Whenever, whenever it's over. Hey, and thanks for listening to the Godless Heathens. That's all I wanted was Mark like TikTok. <laughs> I got him to say it. And I do apologize here because, again, being a colonial historian, the way that I, I look at stuff is just different. And I feel in many ways that not made for these times of such speed and the, the instant, the now. You know, I still appreciate the things like CDs and records. And I remember my time fondly of looking for records rather than downloading, you know, things immediately. I still prefer books. I don't like Kindle, any of that sort of stuff. Right. But does that mean no, and no, and, and this is not a diss that are not in, t not as in touch with the now, because by the way, I've got thousands of CDs and mm -hmm. albums. And I don't want to get rid of them, mainly right. because I don't want a big tech company to own my music. I certainly agree with that. How many times do historians get the opportunity to look back and say, oh, fuck, we missed that one. 
Didn't see that one coming. See, this is the the interesting thing about this now is there's so many historians. So someone somewhere will have caught it. It will be buried somewhere in some obscure publication, but somebody certainly would have caught that you can be sure of. And then that person then will become the man or woman who, or they, who, who managed to capture lightning in a bottle, right? They, they were the ones who, who spotted the thing. And that's kind of also what's going on with history too, is that there's so many places to publish now is that there are all types of publications. Whereas in, in back in the day, you know, I guess the day was, you know, say 60s, 70s, 80s, whatever you want there. I think the books personally were written much better back then. I think people had more time. Yeah, well, that is exactly what a historian would say. Yeah, well, mm-hmm. it, but, it's, but it's also the way that things are set up now. Like you and I, were we talking about songwriting the other day? I, w- I had a conversation about songwriting and um, I found this interesting thing to talk about how with the corporatization of, of music and everything, that the way that songs are written has changed because there's so much money in it and the, and the powers that be have changed songwriting. So back in the day, it was what, uh, one to two people. Now the average is between three and five plus people writing out a song now, right? Cranking this stuff out through a formula. Right? Yeah. And it's not exactly the same in history, but the closest kind of aspect would be the, the infamous publisher parish aspect. I don't know if any of you heard it, but what it really means is that the way that jobs are secured now is different than it was in the past. Sometimes it, there are certain aspects that are certainly better and it's certainly more democratic than the old way. The old way that I was told was that somebody would be finishing or working on their dissertation and their dissertation advisor would call up their friend at UGA or Emory or wherever and say, hey, how's the wife? How's the kids? You know, whatever. Usually a male professor. Um, And they would say, so anyway, I have a student who's, who's ready for a job. When can I send him over? Again, because usually a male back then. Right. The elites. Yeah. But again, uh, elites, though, I mean, people making next to no money, what, what, what level is elite? Like, I had four job offers when I got out. When you control who gets the next job, that's elite. You know what the average starting salary was when I got out? $37,500. I am not at all siding with anybody being overpaid. Everybody other than 1%, 1% should be paid more. But if you control who gets those next jobs, you're damn right you're elite. You're elite you may not be making your... elite money. You hold the power. That's the way that the uh, organization used to work. It used to be called the good old boy system. Yeah, the mafia. <laughs> Not only that, but there was also way less people. Well, yes, it was a good old boy system. You didn't have, you know, say the Georgia States with 52,000 people cranking out, you know, X yeah. amount of PhDs. And then you've got Florida and Georgia Tech, you know, all these other people were just flooded. Uh, and I've seen the statistics and they're, you know, pretty dire, understandably. But the, But what's changed now 
certainly, and it's just accelerated, is that in order to get the job now, you have to have, you know, X amount. You, you never really know what's good enough already published and it's got to be published in reputable, you know, journals or, or presses in order to get a job, maybe again, that'll start off paying probably 40 grand. And this is just after you've completed your, your massive amount of work and all the stuff that's required to get your PhD, all this stuff is, be, is, is now done later. And so if you have average ages of, you know, maybe early forties, when you get your PhD now, you statistically then have visiting gigs for you know, six years, roughly. And I know in the state of Georgia, the first year of tenure track, you're making about $49,000. Mark, this is no different than almost any profession now. There are thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of college graduates that can't crack a career in what they studied mm -hmm. or cannot crack the corporate gig or a full-time gig. Yeah. It's no different anywhere. I mean, you guys might be in, you're definitely in more debt usually to get a PhD and the payoff is more elusive, but that payoff is more elusive across the board for everyone. When's the last middle-class neighborhood in a big city been developed? They'd like it's not anywhere in suburban Atlanta. You want a townhouse? Five, six hundred thousand bucks. That's not middle class by any stretch of the imagination. Mm. I mean, you guys are in the same boat. Well, I'm not in that boat. But what I did mean, mean to say is that that ladder that they're climbing, the reason that there is so much history being cranked out now is that rather than taking more time and having the ability to reflect and to do, you could argue, a little more carefully, carefully crafted works, uh, you are forced to to publish or perish in, in the job market for academia. So does that suggest that that the quality has suffered then? Sounds yeah, like. Yeah, a glut of yes. publishing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's the familiar problem. And there are lots of different schools of thought on this, and there's lots of debates, and it certainly can get ugly. And there's written and unwritten rules, too, about how often should you publish? How soon is too soon? You can see it with people who tend to come out with things a little more often that they're just not quite up to snuff. And again, it's the time, the, per the perspective that's essential for the historian to, to get some distance. And so this idea of having to crank out stuff, you know, seemingly against all odds, is just doesn't bode well for the historical discipline because there's so much stuff, right? If I'm a historian of slavery, for example, there are unbelievable amounts of stuff published every month, let alone every year. And then I could say, you know, as an independent scholar, to get access to just one journal article you're looking at 30 to $50 for a PDF download of just one source. And years ago, when I wrote my first article that won a, a prize for the Southern Historical Association, I think I had, I don't know, somewhere around 190 sources. Mm. The only reason I could do that back then was that I was involved with, with a university. 
do uh, historians have a have a peer review process like uh, let's let's say the medical yes. yeah, okay yes. okay so they do yes. go through a process to make sure there is some accuracy in it then yeah but but it brings an interesting question because there's there's an ongoing not crisis but problem in historical study now with this what they call the new history of capitalism and so it's a self-styled group of historians who have made some controversial claims with their work by getting through the peer review process with major major publishers who have made some everything from mild errors to some major major errors and then mm. even committed what they call the historical cardinal sin of not placing their work within a context and sort of claiming things that were addressed 30, 40, 50 years ago and have been debunked and kind of advancing that as, as original material, as new and, and, and novel. And, it, and it's happening. And you could probably argue that it's also happening because there's so much stuff coming out and a need to have the sort of like historical rock star on your press and to get something out in a timely manner because there are all types of things involved adhering to choices for tenure, for example, in making sure you get your, your book or things on time in order to, to have your file reviewed. Um, it's different for everybody, but certainly there are a number of these issues that have come up that are a little bit head scratching and provoke quite a lot of debate. One of the good things about it though, is that it, it almost always creates a massive wave of more historical work that tends to be higher quality because now suddenly people are paying attention. And so there does seem to be this kind of ebb and flow to the scholarship aspect too, where there are times when it seems like there's an awful lot on Lincoln or Jefferson suddenly, and, you know, there's one or two great works, a whole lot of like kind of bad stuff. And then you'll hit a dead period for a while, and then someone will write something good or bad that then sparks a new wave. And so I see hmm. it all the time with these waves. So I tend to view a lot of news and political cycles the same way of trying to see how things are fleshing out and seeing, you know, the very different sides involved. I apologize for the way this conversation has gone because I told Jerry before, I am, I don't do politics. I, I, I don't like politics. I am a colonial, colonial historian. But that's the part that I don't understand. Yeah. The reason why you're allowed to do what you do is because of politics. If the politics change, you're not going to be able to do independent scholarship mm-hmm. because that happens in every repressive society. They crack down on the media. They crack down on intellectuals. They rewrite the history. It isn't necessarily that the winners write the history, but they approve what history gets to remain written. You know, And those that write history that isn't favorable upon the winners, they come down with a bad case of uh, death. A lot of times. Or in Russia, they get thrown off a balcony. But as Jerry, as you and I talked about before, there are things that, that we can't say. Even if this wasn't a repressive society, there are certain things that can't, can't be said. You can't just 
write whatever you want, particularly when it comes to, you know, elements of race, minorities, you have to be very, very careful with the way things are phrased. And you have to consider your audience at, at all times, particularly with um, the times that we're in now. I mean, if, if somebody has an axe to grind. You don't grind, have to necessarily do, consider your audience. Oh, you, you absolutely have to do. Well, no, no, no. You have to consider the non-audience that's going to come out against you. The people that you're talking about isn't your audience. You're talking about the people that would come out and, uh, I don't want to say cancel, but it is one of the, the phrases of the moment. Like, those people aren't your audience. Those are like, those are the enemies of your audience. Well, I still stand by what I said, though, because you, you still, I think, to be a, a white scholar in a field like slavery studies is, is a very, very tricky, is a very, very, very tricky um, for a lot of the reasons that you could instantly imagine and a lot of reasons that you, you know, probably couldn't. It, you can't just that. So that freedom, right? I understand the kind of freedom you're talking about too, but I also see that other aspect too of like, well, you know, you have to consider not just the right, but also the left and everywhere in between too. When when we're creating these these histories, because it's everything is under a microscope now, right? And I would argue that regardless of your political orientation, I think something has happened in the culture at large that I spoke about earlier in terms of um, we we seem to live in a in a time and place where people don't want to actually know how to do stuff. They want the hack or the shortcut to it. So they are watching YouTube videos and maybe get a two second or 20 second clip of some thing that purports to be historical here, a couple of things here. And we see them in the YouTube comments in that, you know, we see them in the comments everywhere that we're looking these days of the know-it-alls, right? So we see um, the, the, the so-called experts, right? And, and they want to be, what we're, they want to be where we are, or they want to be the the, the go-to authority now. So we don't know what we're talking about, right? So it's that teardown kind of thing, right? So there doesn't seem to be as much relaxed belief or listening to to learn. It's more like learn to attack, learn to tear down, right? And it, it seems that we've gotten that way. Um, sort of year by year, and I see it on all sides. I, I mean, I, I, I would say that even doing a talk like this, it's the furthest thing from being comfortable because there's the historian brain, and then there is the part of me that works with, with Jerry doing stuff that's not history, right? And then trying to navigate those two worlds. They are two different worlds. Very there are two different worlds and going back and forth, it's incredibly difficult. And this isn't a crime, you know, poor me kind of thing. I mean that it reflects more about the society as a whole of, of 
we have this, this learning and this training and this perspective, but we also have a group of people like one or more of yourselves who, who deal with the here and the now and what about the now, right? And um, my brain isn't wired that way. Um, I don't look at history the same way. I don't look at the, the events the same way as they're happening. I look at them through a, a filter and a, funnel, and a funnel where I try to synthesize and, and make some sort of sense of, of these different currents going on. And I try not to react. So history is not an accumulation of the now? <laughs> it's everything that was. That's a serious question. It no, it, it, it is. It is. But the way that I look at them is from, you know, sort of a, a distance. And I try to have some kind of objectivity. I, I know you could think that that's ridiculous, but that is still something we, we strive for in the historical discipline is to take an even handedness. Right. And we try not to write emotionally charged material for a political purpose. But that's not a position. What to say that not Even taking a position is a position. If you mm -hmm. want to say that, that's fine. But I think I, I, I do. But, but, <laughs> but the, but the part about it, though, is I think that that writing and studying history is a deadly serious business. Right. And I and I take it as such. I put an awful lot of time and care to be precise, to say exactly what I mean and not anything different. And it takes time and care and attention. And I refuse to allow, you know, the, the, the tweets of the day to to radically disrupt what I'm doing. Yeah, but could you have but historians don't have their head their head in the sand with what's going on now? No, and, and I a, don't you don't think that's a dynamic? Well, look at the historians you follow. And I certainly can't speak to to all historians. Are you slamming my Twitter of... again? Ah. Well, no, I mean, you, you do follow an awful lot of historians that you've, you've sent me, and they are infinitely better at navigating things like Twitter. I, I don't see the point of it personally, right? Uh, because it, it's an upsetting thing to be plugged into that, what amounts to a lot of negativity, right? All day long doesn't do anything for my mental health. I grew up with two parents who are overwhelmingly negative and unrelenting, right? So I choose to look at things in, in a different way and in history that empowers and not that um, seems- That's not to... a privilege? Well, you're talking about this privilege all the time. Uh, right? I don't know, uh, like that is somebody, somebody who, who can do that, are they not comfortable? And isn't that a so we don't have to call it a we don't have to call it privilege? Isn't that a a basic sense of comfort? Um, I would argue that there's a lot of people that have that have their basic sense of comfort really knocked off its axis of things that are going on now and can be very hard to ignore. Oh, sure. It, it, but not just today. It, at all well, times. Right. But I, you know what? I didn't live in the 20s. I live now. Right. And, my, and same and, with and, me. Right. So it, it's so I can I understand that things were have never been perfect. 
I, 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 I get that. But the events of now are hard to ignore. And my fear as a non-historian is that if we don't pay attention to them, by the time we realize it or have the ability to stop or fix them, it's going to be too late. That's what drives my, you could call it negativity. I could call it looking at the world around me. And I am more wired that way, which was why I was in news for a long time. And it is kind of a fundamental difference of how you see the world. And I don't want to live in the always immediate and always now. But I am concerned that there is this accumulation of potentially terrible things that once you get to a point, you are not going to be able to stem that tide. So there should be a hybrid between historians and and journalists then. <laughs> you know, where you have somebody that's looking at the now, but also understands, you know, the, the, the long history. I think this is the part where I, I get a little mystified because we, we, you know, we get into these conversations of, you know, but isn't that your privilege? And it, what is there to say after that? And, and where do you want to go with that? We're all, if we're all here and now, I didn't choose to be here at this time. You know, I'm, I'm here and now I'm living my life going forward. I had zero money at one point and starved routinely in order to get to where I am. That didn't feel like privilege when I didn't have any food. Right. So I have bust my butt and and had an awful lot of debt that I still owe in order to get that doesn't feel like privilege. But I but I also understand that, you know, if you come out the racial element to say that I'm a white guy, you know, born in 77. Say what what a great time to 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 have that kind of privilege. Where, Where do you go with a conversation like that? Not just economic privilege, though, but the privilege to kind of think and do what you want to do. And look, it's never been 100% equitable, ever. But you're not told what to think. There is an assumption that we will always be a democracy and that the people's voice will be heard and the vote is fair. No, none of those things are. Uh, No, no, no. In our lifetime... In our lifetime, that's always been the conceit that that's always been that way as long as we've been alive. Again, not always 100% fair, but never questioned. Yeah, like the Roman Empire, we always read in history books about where they went wrong, where that empire fell apart, but it's not going to happen to us. Yeah, I, I have that same kind of thing ingrained into me, or I did. And, you know, I don't hold it as tightly as I as I used to because of the current things going on. But is that what you're talking about, Jerry? Is that? It is. Well, I'm just saying humans think that way. You know, we, we always want to think of an afterlife because this can't be all. And so we want this to continue. So we want our democracy to continue forever, even though we, we know there's been example after example of countries and... 
Not that we want it to continue. We expect it to. Right. It's a birthright. It's what it means to be an American. Right. We've always been kind of taught, too, that pendulums will swing, swing to the right for a while, and then they'll swing back to the left for a while. But that's just the course of it. But I, yeah, I'm less and less convinced that uh, the pendulum is still on its axis right now. Well, I mean, I think that's where I would say then I, I didn't grow up with that, with those assumptions. And I grew up heavily influenced by the scholarship of the civil rights movement and the people that I connected with early on, you know, as a student were members of the civil rights movement and, and the leaders of writing scholarship and voices for the disenfranchised and the people fighting to, to make their way. So I didn't grow up with those same kind of assumptions of the American exceptionalism and the idea that we'll always be free, we'll always have the democracy. In fact, just the opposite. And so I grew up with, you know, heroes like John Coltrane, Bob Marley, you know, and various people who had spoken out and, and that spoke to me from, from a young age. And, and I had parents, fortunately, even though they were overwhelmingly negative and working class, um, busted their butt. And my, you know, my mom went to uh, back to school when I was young. So I was exposed to all these wild ideas and books and, and, and stuff laying around, even while they were trying to make their way in the world. And so my assumptions for that from the get go have never been high in the clouds of, of things have always been great. Yeah, they'll kind of swing back and forth, but it'll all work out in the end. I've never looked at that and never approached history that way. What about current events? It's one thing to look at history that way. Isn't it another to look at, at current events the same way? What if I take the historian thing and I put it back on you and say, we're all, we're all trying to make sense like everyone else did at all the time to change, right? That's, that's all we can do, right? I mean, yes, there's always time for worry. There was time for worry back in the 50s and 60s for sure, too. And the 70s, you know, didn't get particularly easier. And I'm sure that if we were to go back and look at them, they would be asking the same questions. Isn't this worrisome? It seems like everything is going to hell in a handbasket. And this is, I think, where where you and I, you know, kind of have the, the difference of opinion of stuff of like, I've never had the rosy view of things. I understand, you know, from my historical training that things have always been a fight. It's just a question of what kind of stories you want to tell yourself to, you know, sort of make yourselves feel better. But I've never been ignorant of, of, of the stories and the various, you know, realities out there. Um, so my answer for, for now and today is, you know, what, what's a good answer? What's an answer that would make you feel better and leave you feeling more hopeful? My, my my interpretation of things is is you see a, a group hell bent on trying to take away stuff, and I also see there are any number of people trying to stop that. And that to me is 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 every bit of a sign of hope, you know, to something to cling on to. That that no, not all things are lost, but yet there's there's always still a chance. It's that human agency, it's that human element. I've talked about it a number of times. But uh, I, I don't see the reason for even giving into. I understand the, the 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 watchdog aspect. I don't understand 
the surrender or like in the text, wanting me to admit that there will be a civil war. What is the upside to that? I can't think of one. Well, there's no upside to that. There's, no, there's, there's absolutely no upside into it. And admit that there's a civil war? No, because I don't necessarily think that. But there also seems to be as just an obstinate position on the other side that it'll never, ever happen. And there's no course of events that could replicate 1865. And when I see the insurrection, air quotes, being rewritten in a matter of months, hardwired into people's brains mm-hmm. on Twitter, on Fox News, in their own bubble, yeah, very concerned. Yeah, and my, my thing is, is the tools of war differ. We don't have the, well, they didn't use muskets during the Civil War, but, you know, definitely not the kind of weaponry that we have now. Sure. They only had newspapers. We, you know, they didn't have the Internet. and They didn't have Q. I don't know. They might have had something similar. But, but yeah, I guess that's, that's the thing to me is, is the world has changed dramatically between then and now. So, yeah, maybe using the word Civil War is, is not appropriate anymore. Maybe there's a, a different term we, sh- we should find, but I think it's the same kind of thing where it it moves us to a breaking point. My hope is we can avoid that. But what if the big lie has always been that things were held together more than they actually were? That might have to be on the next episode. (laughs) That's a good question. If honestly you'll ever come back. But I do appreciate you coming on. This is a fascinating conversation. I really, really appreciate you coming on. I apologize for the, uh, you know, the direction. I mean, look, you know, to to be in the historical profession is is you're you're looked down upon. You know, you don't make any money. You have a title. People mock you for it if you if you use it. You know, people belittle. Well, not everybody you mocks it. you for it. You're respected for it No, and I don't. And I don't too. use it. Out, I don't use it outside of um, you know, like I'll get um, like uh, journals to the house, like you know, like William and Mary Quarterly or something like that, and it'll say like Mark is our PhD. Or, or doctor, yeah. Mark, you know, something like that. But that's the only time I use it. But but to be in that discipline is to have all this knowledge and learning. But then more importantly, you have a, an overwhelming desire to help people. Yeah, you actually yeah. want to leave things better and and to help bring perspective and and not to shape people's views in the way of like I'm going to tell you how it is. It's a dialogue. To that's to why they have podcasts, Mark. View. Right. We're but, there to tell you how it is. But it is a, 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 a difficult thing for all the reasons of, yeah, you don't make any money. There isn't enough time. It's hard to even get to archives, you know, particularly even in the age of COVID. And I'm working on something right now and it's taking me about three times as long uh, as I want to. And it's a but it's a labor of love. But, yeah, it, it's, you know, depending on what version of history you teach. You know, you can teach the version that I think a lot of people are objecting to, which is. There's a whole lot of white guys who did a whole lot of bad stuff, and there is a there is a, a, a narrative there that is sometimes it's 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 a bit difficult to, to swallow if you're a kid coming into uh, these classes and to hear that that you you are a problem just you know you're sitting there you're a problem you don't even know it and you'll never get it you know it, it's hard for these kids you know it's hard for all of the kids regardless of race, class, you know, gender, whatever it is, it's hard for them to kind of make sense of the past anyway. 
and then they, we, we put all of the past stuff on them while they're trying to live their lives too. And, and it's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. That's that tension. Yeah. So. All right. There is uh, no, literally no time for recommendations. Really appreciate your time. Perspective that we don't hear and probably a lot of listeners don't hear. And to be able to have a conversation about quote, the tough issues is good because it's so hard to have them on Twitter. It is. It is. For a lot of the books I read, I read histor- a lot of historians. So kudos to historians. We need them more than ever. Gentlemen, I appreciate it. Thanks all. Thank you. Some of them at the party, and the devil is my friend, and the devil is my friend.